Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the November 2016 podcast. Lovely to have you here. Almost the end of another year. And uh, in fact, it's this time of year, I suppose, when most of us who do shows in December are starting to um, get the inquiries coming in and getting the dates over the festive period booked up. And it led me to think about the way that people do bookings these days. In the past, most people, if they were looking for an entertainer, of course, would simply, well, pick up the phone and ring. But the number of people who do that these days, certainly in my experience anyway, um, has reduced dramatically because most of the people now like to make their inquiries via email or through a website sort of uh, form or something like that. And um, for us as entertainers, this is both probably a good thing and a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. On the one hand, if somebody rings and makes a telephone call, the bad side of that is that they can catch you at an inopportune moment. You might be in the middle of a meal or just got out of the shower. There could be all sorts of reasons why having to speak to somebody at that precise moment and talk to them coherently about what you can offer and try and do a good selling job might be difficult. And um, unless you're prepared to say to somebody, look, listen, I'll tell you what, can I ring you back in a few minutes so you can gather your thoughts? Probably most of us wouldn't do that. We would just wade straight in and, and try and do the sales pitch, irrespective of what had been going on a few seconds before. So it can be a bit of a disadvantage. You you may feel flustered. You may be in the wrong place to write down the information, perhaps. You may not be thinking clearly uh, on the spur of the moment about what fees to charge. So you may either under or over quote. So there are all sorts of reasons why you might not make a particularly good job of it over the phone. On the other hand, the nice thing about having a telephone conversation is that you can get to know the person on the other end, perhaps a little bit, and you can discuss with them more accurately what it is they actually want from you. Because sometimes what they think they want us to do in terms of entertainment may not be what is best for their particular event. And it's only by discussing it with them and getting an idea perhaps of what it is they're, they're having, how many people, what the the um, venue is like, time of day, type of event, age range... Once we can't start to get all this information, it may turn out that, well, actually what they've asked for or what they think they want is not the best thing. And because you're talking to them on the phone, of course, you can start to push them in the direction that will be better for them. And also at the same time, you can upsell them. So if they start off by saying, well, we just want a magician to do an hour during a drinks reception at a dinner... Well, then you might be able to upsell them into not only doing the drinks, but also going around the tables as well. Or perhaps doing the drinks and then later in the evening doing a cabaret spot or something like that. So chatting to somebody on the phone can have its advantages from that point of view. Now, if you look at the email, well, in some ways, receiving an email inquiry uh, is quite nice. There's no stress involved because you can deal with it as soon as you want to. You're not obliged to do it at that precise moment, although obviously getting back to somebody quickly is always a good thing. But you don't have to do it immediately. You can, especially if it's a slightly awkward sounding show or one which you nearly need to think carefully about before you do a quote. So it seems to me that when you you have time to think about it and consider 
what you're going to say and what you're going to offer and how much you're going to charge, you're less likely to make a mess of it. You're less likely to underquote or overquote. Um, and you're more likely to put across all the information that the person needs to hear. You know, if you're sitting down and, and typing out an email, you can do that in a considered manner rather than trying to rush when you're on a telephone with somebody on the other end who's going, hmm, yeah, hmm, yeah, 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 and as if they're trying to rush you along to get to the price. Well, with an email, that doesn't happen. You can lay it all out in detail if you want, giving it precise details of what you can offer. And I think that actually is a, a tremendous advantage for us because it means that you can give a better reply to the inquiry. Of course, the downside of, of emails is that it's really, really easy for people to send out blanket emails to lots and lots of entertainers. When people have to pick up a phone to make an inquiry one by one, then I suspect that they do less of them. You know, they're not going to ring 20 people unless they're particularly um, sort of keen to get a really good broad um, sort of uh, number of people that they can get quotes from. But um, normally speaking, people aren't going to ring more than three or four people. So that's who you're in competition with, probably. Whereas with an email, if they just collect together some email addresses, all they have to do is to type out one email as an inquiry and they can send it to scores of people. And of course, that means that you could be in competition with a lot of people. It also means that they don't have to be too careful about who they send their email inquiry to. So whereas if they were going to make just one or two phone calls, they would study adverts carefully in the old Yellow Pages days to see, well, which of these entertainers sounds like the most likely? Because if you're only going to ring three people, you want to make sure that the three people you ring are all good candidates. Whereas if you're sending emails and you're sending it to lots of people, you don't really care. Oh, another magician? Don't even look to see what he does. Turns out you're wanting a, a corporate magician. Turns out he's a children's entertainer. Well, bang off the email anyway and see what happens. And so a lot of the email inquiries we get possibly have not been thought through as clearly as ones that perhaps come over the phone. So email, telephone, which do you prefer? I, I prefer the email, actually. Um, I like to be able to think carefully about how I'm going to present myself to an inquirer. And I don't particularly like, I used to like the phone call a lot more. But these days, if somebody rings... I, I don't feel as relaxed about it as I used to years ago. And I prefer now to have the, the luxury of thinking more carefully about it, a luxury that you simply don't get when somebody rings you. Do you ever get the feeling that you aren't being given by the lay public the credit that the skill that you use with your magic really deserves? It's a funny thing, this, isn't it? Because... We know how much effort can go into performing some tricks. And when you perform a lot and you get very slick at it, then sometimes this can disguise the difficulty or the technique involved um, that's required in order to make it happen. And I'm, I come, have always come from the school of thought that magic should look as natural as possible. I know there is a, a more recent trend for overt technical skill to be shown, card flourishing and things like that. Uh, it's not personally for me. I, I feel that it kind of clutters or can clutter the plot of the trick. And I think for lay people, the plot of the trick 
uh, if they don't understand the plot because of all the confusing sort of manipulation that's gone around to, to get from one end of the trick to the other, then the chances are they won't perhaps appreciate the magic itself. However, on the, having said that, card flourishers do get credit for the overt skill that they're showing because it looks amazing. And people go, wow, that's fantastic. But it's not just um, a, a skill thing, too. It's also what the audience kind of expects of you as the performer. And this can could be said to come down partly to the age that you are. I mean, you think about it. If you started magic when you were very young, say six, seven, eight, if you did a magic trick, you could, as long as you could get through it and do it passably well, adults would give you a huge amount of credit. Oh, that's amazing. Well done, they'd say. Even though the way you'd done it perhaps wasn't the greatest, it, nevertheless, you got a lot of credit because you were young. And all the time that you're going through your teenage years and so on, you're kind of, your age means that you're ahead of the curve in terms of getting the credit. You, you, you really are given a disproportionate amount. But then as you get older and go into adulthood, and you look like the age of somebody who should be able to do this stuff, then then maybe sometimes the credit isn't quite so freely free or forthcoming because people think, well, you, yeah, you're the magician. You're supposed to be able to do stuff like that. And then the thought occurred to me, well, I wonder whether, so in the middle part of your life, when you, you know, you're really up together and you can do all this stuff, you don't get as much credit as you then get when you get old. You know, if we see a very old magician who can still perform pretty well, we go, oh, that's fantastic. Fancy somebody of 90 being able to do that. And you go back to getting um, a disproportionate amount of credit compared to the actual thing you're delivering simply because of your age. Being young or being very old it should, I suppose, not come into it. But it does, doesn't it? Because for the for the very young and for the very old... To, to do magic is more difficult than for the rest of us, perhaps, in the middle age bracket. So the next time that uh, you feel you're not getting quite the credit that you deserve, just look forward to being really old, because then you'll probably get all the credit that you don't deserve. Back in September, Exeter, where I live, had a visit from Jerry Cottle's circus. Jerry has brought his circus on a number of occasions to the city and uh, and I've been a couple of times to, to see the show. It's a very good show and I report on the latest one uh, in the current issue of Magic Scene. But uh, one of the reasons that I went to the cir circus on this particular occasion in September was because on the bill were Scott and Muriel, who back in the year 2000 won FISM for their comedy illusion act. And I was going to, and indeed did, write an article about them for Magic Scene and I needed to go and interview them. So I went along to the show and after the, the evening show I got to join them in their massive trailer uh, and we had a, a wonderful chat for a couple of hours in which I, I got to, to find out a lot of what their life was like. And, and what it really struck me was that here, here are two people who, for the last almost two decades, have been out on the road almost all the time working. You know, the professional um, magician, it's not a cushy life. 
And, and I think this is exemplified by, by them. The two of them, they travel all over the world to present their act, both in all sorts of different places. I mean, circuses, yes, but also they do it. They perform in theatres and they perform in festivals sort of outside. So there are a lot of different types of event that they can entertain at. Um, but they have to physically get themselves there and they have to be up together in all these different countries with different languages and the whole the whole thing suddenly struck me what a, a tremendous pressure it is for them and for anybody who who's in a traveling any sort of traveling show to perform under almost any type of conditions i mean i think that strolling magicians you know when we go and and we have to go in different venues locally and one minute we're on a in a posh hotel the next minute we're in a village hall the next minute we're in somebody's house the next minute we're out in somebody's garden next minute we could be on a boat going up on a pleasure cruise so you know we get different venues too but most of the time of course we're based at home whereas for people like scott and muriel they can spend they're currently in paris and they're going to spend five months living there away from home um doing their thing in order to earn money and to entertain people and when I was sitting in their trailer and I was thinking everything in that trailer, this was their life. They even had their cat in the trailer with them because well, I can't leave the cat at home. So the cat was there, too. And I thought everything, the whole of their lives um, are focused on the daily performance, the traveling, uh, getting used to new places, getting used to being part of a different show. And I have to say, I, I, I had a tremendous amount of admiration for them, for their energy, their drive. And the way that if something goes wrong, because I, I asked Scott at one point, I said, well, what happens if, you know, you've got all these illusions and various props and things and you're out on the road? What happens if something breaks? Or He said, we fix it. And he said over the years, he'd, he'd got more and more able to fix his own props. Now, everything from electronics through to more physical things like flaps in boxes and things like that. He's had to turn his hand and learn how to do it because when you're out on the road, you can't just turn around to somebody and say, oh, just fix that, will you? Because there may not be anybody there to fix it. So uh, it, it was really interesting um, to, to just to imagine, even though I was only with them for a couple of hours, to imagine what their life must be like. And um, they they had a, a four, I think it was a four day run in Exeter. And then Scott and Mira left the circus at that point uh, and went off to do some other stuff. And they and they were on a boat and then are off to France. Uh, completely different environment, completely different show. It's just an amazing process that these people have to uh, have to deal with. And, and I really do take my hat off to them. I've been selling my ideas and magic now for 35 years by mail order. And it's funny how it started, really, because I, I didn't really intend it to start in the way that it did. I was doing a few lectures when I was very young, in my early 20s. And uh, I understood, because I'd seen other lecturers, that you needed to have a few props to sell, a few of the things connected with the lecture, in order to make it worth doing the thing in the first place. So I used to make up, um, in a very amateurish way, but I used to make up a few of the items from the lecture to sell. And um, initially, my only thought was, well, you take them along to the lecture and you sell them on the night. But of course, what tends to happen is that although the majority of people who are interested in buying something will probably buy it on the night. A lot of others may not. 
and they may go away and think about it and think, actually, I, I really would like one of those. And then people started to contact me afterwards and ask me if I would send them one. And so almost by accident, I started to deliver stuff by mail. And then after a while, I, having only sold items that were in, in lectures, and I actually came up with four completely different close-up lectures in about a four-year four period. So I had a constant turnover of new material that I, that I could sell people. But then I started to, to release items which were not in lectures and which were purely dealer items. And it sort of built from there. And then 35 years later, here I am, still doing the same thing. But I've decided that um, while I like to be able to supply my ideas, that the way that I supply them, um, I feel like I'm, I'm, I need to change this. Magic is changing a lot in the way it's supplied these days. And increasingly, uh, customers are expecting things A, fast, and B, probably as a download or some sort of um, instant access to whatever it is they've just purchased. And with that in mind, I've decided that um, as from the 1st of April next year, um, I'm only going to supply products digitally as downloads. Now, a lot of my, my, uh, my tricks are transferable to that format. Some, a lot of them are already available like that. I have trick clips, which are video clips that people can purchase. I've got um, a lot of um, e-routines, which are downloadable um, PDFs of effects and so on. What I'm going to do is I'm going to expand this and and take out those items that are that require that normally would require me to send them through the mail. So physical items, things made out of brass, leather, wood, that type of thing. I'm going to take those out and I'm only going to supply my ideas and routines digitally. This means, of course, some of, some of the items that I've sold for many years um, will no longer be available once the current stocks. I shan't be restocking them. So between now and, and the 1st of April, um, gradually those things will start to disappear from my list. But what it will do, and what I'm excited about, is going to give me the opportunity to um, bring forward into people's consciousness, if you like, lots of other ideas that I've already got. I already do this a lot in, with my eClub Pro. The members there get new magic every single every single month. I update things, I add things. And over the last six years, a lot of my creativity has been funneled through to that online learning platform. So what I'm really doing, in a, in a sense, is with eClub Pro in the centre of my output, then I'm going to take everything else that I supply that isn't in eClub Pro will also be delivered in the same way, either as online video or downloadable products it means I can bring out more quicker and can bring all my prices down there won't be any postage uh, to be added which also helps particularly for overseas people because the, the price of overseas postage these days is so high it's cripplingly high and it means of course that everybody will be able to get everything in my range literally instantly so I'm really looking forward to this transition. It's going to be a gradual transition in some ways because gradually things will be discontinued that are no longer going to be restocked because they're physical products. Um, and if therefore, if there are things, I don't know, birthday cards, surprise cards or things like that that you normally have, then you may want to get hold of those while they're still available. 
because once it comes to the 1st of April, they won't be available anymore. And when current stocks of the, of the, of the, that I have at the moment are gone, I won't be restocking. But um, it will also mean at the same time I can gradually start to phase in these extra digital products and then that will be an ongoing process um, from April the 1st next year onwards. So I really look forward to, to bringing you loads of new ideas and new things and getting it to you in a quick, efficient and modern way. One of my pet peeves is um, motorway services. When you're driving on the motorway and you pull in to one of these um, places, you are greeted as you come off the motorway by a, a sort of tsunami of signs pointing you in all sorts of different directions uh, for all sorts of different purposes, whether you want fuel, whether you want food, whether you want uh, an overnight accommodation, what, whether you want the garage to get fuel, whatever it is, there are there is a huge plethora of signs that hit you the minute you come off the motorway. And they have to do this because, quite frankly, there are, as far as I can see, in the UK, there are no two motorway services that have been made with the same layout. They are all different. For a start, why would you do that? It means every time that somebody goes into one they haven't been into before, they've got to try and work out where to go. And they're all very, very different in the way they've been designed because, obviously, they've been designed, some of them, many, many years ago, and others are more modern, and there are new ways of doing things. But nevertheless... So they need signs. But the, the peeve is not the, the fact that there's lots of signs, which you need. It's the fact that these signs are almost all pictures and not words. Now, I know I can understand why you might want to represent where people need to go in a pictorial way. There could be people who don't speak English and who are visiting the country and who therefore can identify a picture better than they might a word. But I'm, I'm a very wordy person. I really like words. And when I come off the motorway and I'm faced with an avalanche of signs, I actually find it slightly slower to work out what the, the stupid pictures are supposed to be representing than I do the word. If it says fuel, I know where the petrol is. But if it shows me some little picture that I've got to identify, is that is that a fuel pump? Is that what that's supposed to be? Then, and the the two seconds that you have to make up your mind about which lane or direction you're supposed to be going in, I actually find the words quicker than the pictures. Anyway, there is a point, apart from telling you this is one of my pet peeves, there's a point of all this, and that is that increasingly in our lives we are getting more and more pictorially led more and more things are being done in visual ways rather than with words. And you've only got to, to look at, for instance, websites, which is a classic case. When websites first started, because of the, I suppose, because of the bandwidth at the time, there weren't that many pictures, um, but there was a lot of text. Now websites are covered in video and uh, because people want to see stuff and they want to see it. I mean, YouTube has taught everybody that, that anything you want to see, you can find it is a moving picture. You don't have to read it anymore. Someone will show you what it is. And so that's why for us magicians with our websites, video has become incredibly important. 
it's not just a case of, well, it'd be nice to show them a little bit of the way I perform, although obviously that's a nice thing to do and a good thing to do. It's almost because people are going to expect the, that you will have video on your website, that it will be there. And they don't necessarily want to read screeds of what you do. They want you to show them pictorially, both with stills and, of course, with this video, exactly the way you perform and what you can offer. And if you don't have video on your website, then it can be um, very detrimental to the impact that you have when somebody visits. And we all know that people will only stay often for a very few seconds on a website they don't know um, as they get an initial impact about does this look like a place where I want to get into? Does this person, is he somebody I really want to find out about? And it's very easy for them to go oh, and actually know and click on to something else. What video does is not only does it engage people, but it keeps them there because it, it's a sequence. It's one square, one um, little square on the homepage or wherever it is that keeps moving and changing and telling them stuff and showing them things. And it keeps them fixated on your website. So I think that if you don't have um, enough video on your website it's something that you really need to think about because it is definitely something that people are going to be looking for. Dominic Reyes of Merchant of Magic is a very astute businessman I reckon because um, increasingly he's been making available all sorts of free informational booklets and blogs which are mainly aimed at beginner magicians but which provide a lot of very interesting and pertinent information for anybody who's involved in magic. And I was very recently, I was reading um, one of the, his more recent ones, which is all to do with the subject of practice. Because I think for many magicians, how to practice and how long to practice for is an issue that they, they need some help with. And there was, just to slightly paraphrase a sentence that Dominic had put um, in this particular article that I thought was really, really good. And the sentence is, how you spend your practice time is more important than how much time you spend practicing. I think that's a brilliant sentence because in one sentence it crystallises just about everything that you need to know about practicing. You see, I'm sure that some people, particularly perhaps when they first start magic, and they are trying to overcome technical hurdles, you know, technical slights that they that they can't do, and they just think, well, if I just practice this for four hours, I'll be able to do it. Well, there is a certain element of truth in that, I suppose, uh, and certainly things that your fingers are not used to doing, techniques that you're not au fait with already can take a little while to master. Although I would say that if something is so difficult that it takes that amount of practice, hours and hours and hours and hours to get it anywhere near sort of to the stage where you can use it, you w might want to consider whether it was it's worth the effort. However, practice is a good thing, but it's not just how long you practice that is important, of course. You know, length of time is not the only parameter. Because if you start off practicing the wrong thing, all you're doing, the longer you do it, is consolidating an error. 
And then it's really difficult if somebody spots it and says, oh, whoa, 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 no, you're flashing that terribly. No, no, you should be doing it like this. Now it's really, really difficult. If you've spent five days, four hours a day practicing something wrong, now try and unlearn that. It's not easy. And this is what um, Dominic, the point, one of the points that Dominic is making, that you should not just practice for a length of time, but be analytical and critical um, of what it is you're practicing. Are you achieving, do it in small bits, and are you then, when you do these little bits, are you achieving what you set out to achieve? Uh, he suggests, for instance, breaking routines down into small component parts and practicing the individual component parts rather than trying to practice the whole thing. Because if you concentrate on one small part, you can be more analytical about how it looks and are you achieving what you need to achieve. So thinking about what you're practicing, filming your practice so that you can watch it dis back dispassionately and see whether what you're doing is looking OK and going in the right direction that is really really important not just how long you do it and if you can get somebody to help you if you're not experienced with this type of thing to to watch you practice and to help you get it right the first time then you won't need such a great length of time to practice because you'll pick these things up that much quicker right another half hour has raced by thank you so much for spending a bit of time with me to, to let me uh, chat with you about these various topics i hope you've enjoyed it and I look forward to being here with you again in December. Bye for now.